0: Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Katani. In this episode, sponsored by AstraZeneca, we're taking a closer look at the red stuff, finding out what a few millilitres of blood can reveal about the development, progression and treatment of cancer within the body. If you follow the science news, which, being a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you do, you can't have failed to notice regular headlines promising a simple blood test for cancer. There have been many stories about such tests over the years, and it's easy to see their appeal. Rather than painful surgical biopsies, expensive scans, or complicated screening tests, what if we could simply take a small tube of blood and discover a wealth of information? such as whether or not you have cancer in your body, where it started, how to treat it, and whether that treatment is actually working. Many of these blood tests, often referred to as liquid biopsies, rely on the detection of tiny fragments of DNA shed from tumour cells that float about in the bloodstream, known as circulating tumour DNA or CT DNA. And as the technology improves year on year, these tests are coming closer and closer to becoming a reality, moving from the arena of research into clinical practice or widespread screening. I caught up with Susan Galbraith, Executive Vice President for Oncology R&D at AstraZeneca, to find out more about where ctDNA comes from and what it can tell us about cancer. Well, many different cells will release DNA as they break down.
1: So the cancer cells aren't vastly different from normal cells in that regard. It's just that because the cancer cells contain a range of different mutations and other changes that you can detect in these small amounts of of cancer cells, you're just being able to pick that up on the background of all of the normal DNA that's coming from normal blood cells, normal epithelial cells, as they go through their cycles of cell division, growth and death. You know, there have been advances in technologies such as next generation sequencing, which have made it possible to measure and analyze very small amounts of the DNA within the bloodstream with increasing sensitivity. And we can use these technologies to measure the absolute amount of circulating the tumor DNA and also to sequence it and identify specific cancer mutations.
0: When we think about cancer, we think about cells that have a lot of genetic changes, so just changes in their DNA code. But we're also starting to understand that cancers have a lot of these epigenetic changes, sort of changes that affect how genes are active. So can we find those? And and is that useful information as well?
1: Yes, we can find those, and it's incredibly useful information. Yes, we do know that the mechanism by which cells are switching on and off different segments of genes that those control mechanisms or epigenetic controls are also quite abnormal in cancer cells compared to normal cells. You know, those abnormal changes in the epigenetic profile are highly detectable and they can increase the sensitivity by which you can detect abnormal DNA within the blood.
0: So what can studying this circulating tumour DNA tell us about cancer in the body? Is it just like, okay, there's there's some cancer in there? What What kind of picture can we paint of what's going on in these processes inside the body by looking for these fragments of DNA.
1: Well, one thing that the epigenetic program tells you is the tissue of origin where the cancer has come from. So if you take, for example, one of the most common mutations is P53 mutation, which is, you know, it's called the guardian of the genome. And once that's mutated, you've got the increased likelihood of getting a large number of other mutations that are happening. But you can have P53 mutation in many, many different cancers. So just detecting a P53 mutation in the peripheral blood doesn't tell you where that cancer is likely to arise. And so by looking at the epigenetic changes, it can tell you which tissue the abnormal DNA has come from. And that's much more useful information for then subsequent imaging tests to try and identify the cancer and identify whether surgical intervention would be appropriate or thinking about the different treatments that might be available in the event that you identify the cancer.
0: So that's clearly very useful that if you think that someone has cancer to be able to tell where it is based on this information. But what about, you know, looking at what's actually going on with the the growth of cancer? Can we get information about that as well? You absolutely can. You can get a quantitative measure
1: of the amount of cancer that is around. At the moment, we measure response to treatment through quite often imaging tests. And the imaging tests quite often don't tell you very clearly whether all the cancer is disappeared after a certain treatment. Circulating tumour DNA offers the opportunity to give more precision around how much cancer is around. And that can improve the monitoring and then the adjustment of treatments based on that change in the circulating tumour DNA.
0: I think this is so exciting and so important because the more I research about cancer, we understand that, you know, you give someone a treatment and it looks like it's working and on a scan, all the cancer seems to have gone, but then the cancer comes back and we now understand that it's because we've got these tiny little pockets of cells that are left that are now resistant to the treatment and they're growing again. So is this the kind of thing that we should be able to monitor using blood tests rather than you know, having to have lots of scans or, or having to have even lots of surgical samples taken?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We need some more data to understand how the changes in circulating tumor DNA correlate with the imaging changes. But I do think there's a future where you can have more monitoring tests done by blood tests using this kind of technique rather than having to have repeated CT scans or MRI scans and certainly cut down on the number of those. And I also see that we can switch treatments at an earlier point once we know whether the drug isn't working anymore. You can switch treatments and give people more appropriate treatment and that means that you're more likely to have a better longer term outcome um, because you can work out whether a drug is not just working in a population, people, but for an individual patient.
0: So it sounds like we've got a lot of uses for this kind of technology. We can detect cancer in the blood. We can figure out where in the body it's come from. We can look at the mutations that are in there and see whether particular treatments are likely to work. And then we can monitor the cancer as it's growing and as it's responding to treatment and potentially coming back or, or not responding to treatment. So. What are your interests as a a drug company in this kind of technology? Are there particular projects that you're applying this kind of technology to improve treatments?
1: So we're applying this technology in many different ways across our portfolio. One of the most exciting that I think has the potential to make a biggest difference to long-term outcomes is this use of early detection. And we've got a collaboration with a company called Grail. Using their tests will identify patients at an earlier stage. And then having identified them, we can potentially give them a treatment at an early stage of their cancer where it's more likely to work. And by linking together with this company, I think it offers the possibility of moving drugs that are currently being used in the late stages of cancer into the early stages of the disease where cure is more possible, more rapidly than we've ever done before. I do you think this is a fundamental part of what will help us to build more effective treatment regimens.
0: We'll be coming back to the use of ctDNA blood tests for early detection and cancer screening later on, but before that, I wanted to learn more about how cancer researchers and doctors are using ctDNA to understand more about the progression and evolution of cancer in the body, a topic I'm particularly interested in since writing my latest book, Rebel Cell, Cancer Evolution and the Science of Life. And who better to speak to than Charles Swanton, or Charlie, as I know him, Professor of Oncology at University College London and a group leader at the Francis Crick Institute, where he and his team are applying ctDNA technology in research and ultimately in the clinic to improve treatment for patients.
2: Well, I mean, one of the major problems in oncology is accessing tumour. As you know, Kat, patients with advanced metastatic disease, a disease that spread beyond the primary site, can have tumour lesions in deep parts of the body, deep organs of the body, like the liver, the spleen, the bone, the brain, and what have you, relatively inaccessible sites that biopsy needles can't get to readily without pain and complications to the patient. So when the ctDNA field first emerged approximately 10 or so years ago, there was huge excitement because this might, or at least promised to, enable us to profile tumours more readily and understand their genetic underpinnings without having to necessarily biopsy them at regular intervals through a simple blood draw.
0: I'd certainly rather take that than a massive needle shoved into a bit of me, for sure.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt.
0: So perhaps we've conventionally had this idea that cancer, it starts from cells growing out of control. It's a mass of cells. They, They grow, they spread through the body. And then we treat them but how have we started to get a more sophisticated understanding of what these cells are actually like at, at, at a genetic level and then and then what they're up to
2: yeah great question so this is an area we've been uh, focusing on really for the last decade and what i think you're alluding to is what the scientists call tumor heterogeneity tumor heterogeneity essentially means that cells are different within the same tumor they derive from a common ancestor a common cancer stem cell, if you like, a cell of origin. And that cell of origin will contain a set of mutations that will continue to propagate through the tumor ever onwards. And we call those mutations the trunk mutations. Those are the mutations found in every tumor cell. And then there are mutations found in some cells, but not others. And work from us and others back in 2012 showed that depending on where you put your biopsy needle, And depending on which part of the tumour you subject to DNA sequencing, you get a different result. Now, one of the beauties of CT DNA sampling or sampling DNA from the blood is, if you like, it's a soup of mutations that gives you a more representative sample of what mutations that tumour contains. Both the dominant mutations in the trunk and the branch mutations, those mutations found in some cells, but not others, that will be present less frequently in the tumour.
0: I remember when your paper came out, yeah, about 10 years ago now, and it was like, ah, this is why cancer is so difficult to treat because all these cells aren't the same. So if you give a drug that will work on some of them, it's not going to work on necessarily all of them. And those are the cells that are going to keep growing and then the cancer is going to come back and then you've got even more of a problem. But now you're saying, so if just taking a simple biopsy is not going to give the full picture and we do need to get a better picture of all the different mutations in a tumour, Kind of technically, how does this work from a blood draw? Because like you've got 10 mils of blood or how, how much DNA have we got in there? And, and how do you piece together the picture of cancer in the whole body from this sort of uh, soup of DNA and mutations? And you've got normal DNA in there as well. This sounds really hard.
2: Yeah. So you've hit the nail on the head again. Nothing is perfect. And obviously we cannot sample the entire patient's Blood volume. <laughs> yeah. So, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us again with another sampling problem in that for tumors that are, are small, obviously the amount of DNA they release into the blood is going to be a lot lower. And as a result, our limits of detection for those mutations will be problematic. So, the bigger the tumor, the less of a problem this is.
0: But presumably, as technology improves, you know, we have now incredibly sensitive DNA sequencing technologies. So I, I guess that is a problem that will get easier to, to figure out.
2: Yeah, that, that's true to a certain extent. But then there is still a, what we call the stochastic issue, which is, is the mutant DNA even present in your blood tube? And for a very low frequency mutations, due to this sampling problem, you might just not capture the right 10 mils of blood at the right time with the right mutations in. And no no matter how sensitive your sequencing technique is, you still may not be able to detect the mutant DNA because it's just simply not in your blood tube.
0: So those are the limitations. But let's talk about some of the promise now. So given that we can detect mutations, we can build up some kind of picture of the, the cancer in the body, the heterogeneity, what we're up against. How are you starting to use this in your research? And how, how close are we to getting this kind of technique being used in the clinic?
2: So we are using ctDNA in three ways. The first sort of area of huge interest to us and many others is this area of early diagnosis or early detection. So can we use ctDNA to detect tumors in blood before they've presented symptomatically? And you and I know how important that is, because we know if we detect tumors earlier, in general, they're associated with better prognosis and better clinical outcome. The second area is in this clinical scenario, which we call minimal residual disease. So following surgery, we hope to cure the majority of patients with early stage lung cancer, but we still know that some patients' tumours will come back. The difficulty is we don't know who we've cured and who we haven't cured by surgery alone. So we end up treating almost all patients with stage two and stage three cancer with adjuvant chemotherapy, chemotherapy to mop up any residual cancer cells. We call this a sort of an insurance policy, if you like.
0: But that is not a nice thing to have to have, and especially if actually it turns out you don't need it.
2: That's right. We're hoping that ctDNA may help to illuminate this so that we only treat those patients who really need chemotherapy with those drugs. And then the final area that we're fascinated by that is increasingly important is using ctDNA to offer patients the right drug at the right time in the metastatic setting. That is once the tumour is spread beyond the primary to seed metastatic sites.
0: So how does that work? This is about actually figuring out what these cancer cells are really like and, and the best approach to, to get rid of them all.
2: Yeah, so this is precision medicine or personalised medicine. This is where we sequence the DNA and ask, well, what mutations are driving that cancer? And can we use those mutations to target with new cancer drugs? to reduce the risk of tumour progression and hopefully extend survival.
0: That's Professor Charles Swanton from the Francis Crick Institute and UCL. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This episode is sponsored by AstraZeneca. As Charlie mentioned, one exciting application of ctDNA is in detecting cancer earlier. My old boss from Cancer Research UK, Sahar Kumar, is now the president of Grail Europe, a company that has developed a blood test for multiple different types of cancer based on looking for DNA methylation patterns on fragments of circulating tumour DNA. These methylation marks are molecular tags attached to DNA that are associated with changes in gene activity, also known as epigenetic changes. So... How can we use this information to detect cancer? And what else can it tell us?
3: What we've done over the years is to understand which regions of the genome that are aberrantly methylated can best distinguish cancer from non-cancer. And so we use that to essentially figure out who is likely to have cancer, who is not, but the beauty of methylation is it also enables us to say where is that signal coming from with pretty high fidelity. So, for example, we're able to, first of all to say this person is likely to have cancer, and then secondly, we're able to say and it's most likely a pancreas cancer or an ovarian cancer or what have you.
0: That's really important because it's not really very helpful just to say to someone. Rrr oh dear, it looks like we've picked up a signal of cancer. It would be helpful if you knew at least where to start looking
3: for it. Indeed, we think that's critically important.
0: So you're looking at these epigenetic marks, these methylation marks on the DNA. You're not looking at changes to the DNA itself, mutations that we might more often associate with cancer. And So this is more just, are we seeing the presence of aberrant cancer cells based on these methylation marks rather than going, oh, it's got this mutation or that mutation.
3: Correct. I have to commend the way that Grail went about this because actually they started out by doing a completely unbiased discovery study to really understand which technological approaches gave the best signal in terms of this critical question of differentiating cancer from non-cancer. And so they looked at mutations and they looked at copy number variations and they looked at every sort of approach you might think of. And actually methylation came out as giving the best differential signal. And indeed, that none of the other approaches, mutations, copy number variations, et cetera, none of those added anything to that signal. So that's how GRAIL ended up with this methylation assay and did, and then has further optimised it to look at the very specific regions that give the best signal to noise differentiation.
0: I do find this kind of technology amazing because I worked in the area of epigenetics when I was doing my PhD. So This is sort of early 2000s and we were getting into the idea of studying DNA methylation, these little flanks that we find on the sequence of DNA. And the technologies we had then were not sophisticated. You know, the DNA sequencing technology wasn't very sophisticated. And then our ability to look at methylation marks and see whether things were more methylated or less methylated than we expected at the genes we were studying. That was really, really hard. So there must have been some kind of like quantum leap in the technology between then and now that enables you to do this.
3: Well, I mean, as you rightly say, there have been very significant advances in technology over the last five, 10 years. And by the way, it isn't just the technology itself. It's also the price of that technology. And and the fact that it's come down so much means that you can look in much greater depth on a particular DNA sample. And that enables you to detect signals that are present in actually minute quantities. So there's been advances in sequencing, there's been advances in chemistry, and then in terms of the overall workflow that enables you to do this at large scale for what we believe will be an acceptable cost.
0: The computing as well, presumably, to interpret all this data. I, I feel like you're almost looking for needles in haystacks when you're talking about finding these tiny fragments of DNA and these little methylation marks, and are they more or less than we're expecting? That's a big statistical computational problem as well.
3: Huge statistical computational problem, and the the volumes of data we generate through our work and through our clinical studies dwarfs pretty much anything else that's out there in genomics right now.
0: So thinking about applying this to cancer screening, so here in the UK we have national screening programmes for cervical cancer, for bowel cancer, for breast cancer. How are you thinking about applying this technology to cancer screening? Because obviously with screening, it's really important that you can pick up cancers early at a stage when they are more likely to be treated successfully, that you're not picking up these cancers that actually might not cause a problem or maybe don't need treating now and that, you know, it is useful and informative. So how are you testing this out?
3: From all of the studies we've done already, we know the test works. We know we can pick up cancers. What we're now doing is some very large clinical studies looking at the clinical utility. So we're in the midst of a very large randomized control study in the UK called the NHS Gallery study. It's 140,000 people. And the objective is to see, can we make a significant difference in terms of reducing the number of people who are only detected at late stage? Can we pick them up earlier? There are several critical things. When you think about the use of technology like this in population screening, you want to be able to detect as many cancers as possible, but you want to do it with a very low false positive rate. So you want to have what's called very high specificity. Why is that important? Because you're screening what would otherwise be a healthy population. And so what you don't want to do Is tell lots of people they might have cancer when actually they don't oh no you do not and (laughs) and so because that not just causes anxiety obviously but it leads to a whole bunch of follow-on investigations that may not be necessary and may themselves have risks associated with them so you want to have a very low false positive rate and you know it looks like our false positive rate is an order of magnitude better than the current screening programs we have so that's very promising
0: So we're going to wait for the results of that, and that will be very interesting to see how this goes. But we talked earlier in the podcast about the use of circulating tumor DNA for studying the mutations in cancer, studying how cancer is growing in the body, and then using this in the context of things like clinical trials and, and in the drug development process as well. So how are you working with AstraZeneca? To use your technology for the kinds of questions that they're trying to ask about how can we find better treatments for cancer?
3: Sure. So most of what we've talked about so far has been about how we apply this technology in people who don't yet know they have cancer. But of course, the same kind of technology could be very applicable for people who do know they have already had a cancer diagnosis, and how can we manage them better? And there are two or three different respects or different opportunities in this arena. One is knowing that ctDNA can be predictive of outcome. Can we use that to essentially to assess prognosis for an individual?
0: So that means that by looking at a sample of their blood, you might have an idea of how their cancer is likely to go. Is is this going to be a bad one? Is their outcome likely to be good? There's sort of survival
3: chances. Correct. And what that gives you the opportunity to do is to say, for those who look like they might have a worse prognosis, should we invoke treatment earlier or more intensively? And particularly when we're picking up early stage cancers, you want to be really sure about who you should give the more intensive treatment to and who you shouldn't. But it offers the opportunity for what are called neoadjuvant or adjuvant studies in those early stage cancers. And of course, up until now, we haven't detected them early enough to be able to do such studies. But now we do have those opportunities. So that's one whole arena. Another arena is can we then use this kind of technology to monitor how patients are doing when they are on treatment? Can we figure out those who are responding or not responding, can we understand if people are having recurrences before that may be evident clinically through imaging or, or some other technology? And indeed, can we see if someone's actually developing another cancer? Because we know people who've been diagnosed previously have a higher risk of developing another cancer. So all of these things, all of these areas are opportunities, and they're areas that we are exploring in partnership with AstraZeneca.
0: Anyone listening to this who's had cancer or, or knows someone they love with cancer will know that even once you've been told, like, it's okay, I think we've, think we've got it. We, th- we think you're doing all right. We think you're all clear. There's always that doubt in your mind. Is it going to come back? Is it coming back? Every sort of lump, bump, symptom, something strange, you're like, is it coming back? Could these kinds of technologies, whether it's the Grail test or other circulating tumor DNA tests, be a way of, you know, you can have a blood test every six months and, or every year and, and know really are you in the clear? Because that would be incredibly reassuring for patients and, and their families.
3: I mean, I think you've described it beautifully, and I'm not going to repeat everything you've just said there. But yes, that is a significant opportunity. And look, let's just be clear. No test is absolutely perfect. So we'll never be able to give people a 100% guarantee. But what we can do is to significantly improve the information we have. So one specific example of what you've just described is what we call minimal residual disease. So, you know, we may have removed a tumour with surgery, but there might still be some tumour that is invisible through our current imaging technologies. We know through work that's been done with circulating DNA that we can detect those many, many months potentially even a year or more before they're visible clinically. And that offers the opportunity to to catch it and deal with it before it becomes a problem. And so this notion that you can monitor how things are going, either give reassurance to the patient or indeed say, look, we think there's something still there. We need to give you a bit more treatment is another really important opportunity for the field.
0: Given how far we've come in what feels like a very short length of time from understanding that you know the, the underlying genetics, the epigenetics of cancer to potentially having tests where we can take a blood sample and we can diagnose cancer, we can understand the mutations in it and select the right treatments, we can monitor it. How do you feel that this technology, access to this technology is going to shape and transform cancer care over the years
3: to come? Well, I'll just pick up on the word that you just used, that this will transform cancer care. You know, whether it's this specific test or whether it's other tests that use the same sort of general concept, the notion that you can use blood tests that look at circulating DNA to understand whether people do or don't have cancer and how they're likely to do, will totally transform cancer. I'm quite confident of that. And it will transform cancer in the near to medium term, actually, because it will mean that we can find cancers earlier when we know we're more likely to be able to treat them successfully, but also then that we can manage them better as they're going through their treatment. And all of that offers the opportunity for vastly improved outcomes from where we are today.
0: That's Harpal Kumar from Grail. And you can find out more about the NHS Gallery trial for cancer screening that Harple mentioned at nhs-gallery.org. And that's gallery, G-A-L-L-E-R-I. Thanks to my other guests, Susan Galbraith and Charlie Swanton. And thanks very much to AstraZeneca for sponsoring this episode. Visit AstraZeneca.com to find out more about what science can do when it comes to helping us understand, treat, and ultimately beat cancer that's all for now next time we'll be mixing up Sherlock Holmes and CSI taking a look at the genetics of fingerprints and the stories revealed by genetic fingerprinting for more information about this podcast including show notes transcripts links references and everything else head over to geneticsunzip.com you can find us on twitter at Genetics Unzip, and please, 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 as always, do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world, dedicated to supporting and promoting the research teaching and application of genetics you can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk our theme music was composed by dan pollard our logos designed by james male and audio production is by sally lepage thanks for listening and until next time goodbye